you know each heart. So use it as you see fit for your glory. Amen. So we are in the book of Romans. We started our study four weeks ago, did an overview of it the first week. And, and then the last three weeks, we've been in the first 15 verses of the letter, which is really the introduction to the letter. In, in, the, in the first uh, week of that, we were in verses 1 through 7, where Paul did what I've, uh, I termed as an official rapport with the church in Rome, because it was not a church which he had planted, nor a church which he had visited, but one which he felt a strong, um, con- a strong feeling of responsibility for as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he establishes an official report with them. And then in the past two weeks, we've examined kind of the spirit of Paul's ministry, establishing a, a personal rapport with the church in verse 8 through 15 of chapter 1, and demonstrates what it takes to be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and by that, again, I said it last week, that doesn't mean that, you know, this is only in regard to those that are full-time staff in churches or pastors within churches, but God calls each of us to be ministers for his glory. Servants is what the word minister means a servant well he calls all of us to serve him so we saw you know the kind of things about him that made a good minister in essence what we have seen in those verses 8 through 15 of chapter 1 was the heart of the apostle now in in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 we'll see the heart of the epistle 8 through 15 the heart of the apostle verses 16 and 17 the heart of the epistle. And these two verses comprise the theme of the entire letter to the Romans. And the subject of these two verses and and the letter itself is the gospel. It's the gospel which reveals the righteousness of God. In verse 15, Paul affirmed that he was eager to go to Rome and preach the gospel, not just to the lost, but even to the church, because the church needs to be reminded of the gospel regularly as well, which is why we remember the Lord on a weekly basis. It reminds us of the great message of the gospel. And then in verses 16 and 17, he transitions and he explains in short form what will be explained in detail in the rest of the letter. And that is, the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. Amen. Amen. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. Now there's a progressive unfolding of Paul's thoughts and feelings in regards to the gospel which he was eager to preach. The verse 15 again said that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And then he begins by stating that he's not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, notice that first word in that, in that statement. F-O-R, for. Which is telling you that it's tied to the previous statement that he was not uh, that he was eager, ready, willing to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Well, this is the reason why. Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the idea of being ashamed 
uh, as described here is not the same as we as we might use the word in it in 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 our world. It's not the same, for example, as a parent who is ashamed by uh, what a child does or says, something that makes him or her look bad in the eyes of others. It's not the same as you know being caught doing something wrong, even though you know that it's wrong. For example, uh, you know it's kind of the hand in the cookie jar being caught with your hand in a cookie jar, or even more so like we experienced with our children that time, it was catching your child whose hand had already been in the cookie jar and they had eaten the cookie, but it was all over their mouth. (laughs) Did you take a cookie? No. (laughs) The evidence is in. You, You did. And, and uh, you know, so it's not that kind of shame either of, of being caught, you know, doing something wrong. Um, rather, what the meaning of the word is as it's used here in this text, it, and the word ashamed can have that meaning even in the scripture, but here what it really means is that Paul is not fearful. He's not fearful of sharing the gospel. He's not as fearful of what persecution would come his way if he were to preach the gospel. Let me share a few verses with you that uh, tie to this. One is Mark 8.38, where Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 is even more clear, where it says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Clearly, He's talking about fear and shame. They are tied together. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, where Paul writes, This is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me. He's not ashamed. He's not fearful of sharing the gospel. Even though he is in prison as he writes those words, and in prison for sharing the gospel. So all of the antagonists of the gospel did not intimidate him. That's what he's saying. In fact, you could put it in a positive phrase. The negative phrase is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If you were to put it in a positive framework, I am very proud, I am very pleased, I'm very confident in sharing the gospel. Because The antagonist of the gospel did not intimidate him. All the learned philosophers and and powerful politicians in the Roman Empire could not make Paul shrink from declaring the good news about God's Son. That's how he puts it in Ephesians chapter 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He had not been intimidated in any city where he had preached the gospel. Think of it. In Athens, 
in Athens, the philosophers had made fun of him because of his preaching. This was like, he's a seed picker. I mean, he's just like a philosopher just traveling around, picking up this seed, that seed, and trying to cast it around. And in Philippi, he had been arrested, beaten, and imprisoned, put in stocks for his preaching of the gospel. He had been driven out of Thessalonica and Berea uh, for his proclaiming the gospel. He had been stoned in Lystra and left for dead because of his preaching. He had been brought before Gallio in Corinth, where the Jews hoped he would be severely punished for his preaching. Everywhere that Paul went, he encountered opposition to the preaching of the gospel. Even as he writes these words, that he's not ashamed of the gospel, he knows there is a plot by the Jews to take his life to keep him from preaching the gospel. And yet he could say that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. His desire was to proclaim it and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord wherever he went. Now, I'm confident, I really am, that most of us would like to say that we, too, are not ashamed of the gospel. But I think, I think that most of, if not all of us, would admit that there are times where we are ashamed of the, of the good news. And don't, you know, none of us would like to admit that it remains reality. I mean, at times when we could speak, we don't. We're fearful uh, of, of people. And so the times we pass up the opportunity to share Christ, well, I think they're all too often. Again, we are fearful uh, of the way that people respond to us. We, we are all uh, afraid and afraid of being rejected. Rejected. Who likes to be rejected? Anyone? I love being rejected. No, no one likes that. No one loves that. We know that the world views the gospel as foolishness and, and we become ashamed because we think that they will see us as fools for believing the message about the blood and the cross, about sin and death, about forgiveness and eternal life. And so we either fail to share the message or we are, because we're afraid, or we are tempted to, you know, water it down just a little, trying to make it more appealing to people. And if we give in to fear, people will not hear the message, or they will hear a message that could never save them because the message has been altered so much that it no longer has the power to save. So let us not be ashamed of the gospel. That's the very first thing that Paul's talking about in these two verses, not being ashamed of the gospel. May we all pray that God would make us be able to say that with integrity, with honesty. That we're not ashamed of the gospel, not fearful of sharing the gospel. The second thing that he talks about is the power of the gospel. So the reason... 
Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, was that he understood and fully believed that the gospel was, is the power of God for salvation. But I want you to notice, again, the first word of this phrase. It's that three-letter word once again, F-O-R, for. So, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Verse 16, for this reason, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God to save people. He's explaining the reason why he's not ashamed. Now, notice that he does not say that the gospel contains power or that the gospel exerts power. What does he say? He says that the gospel is, is the power of God for salvation. And the Greek word for power some of you, if not all of you, have heard it before. It's the, the, the Greek word is dunamis, and we get the English derivation of that, you know, dynamite, right? That's where we get the word dynamite. But this isn't the idea that Paul is expressing. He's not talking about explosive things going off. I mean, they didn't have dynamite in the day when Paul wrote these words. That was discovered much, much later you know, gunpowder and all of that. The the emphasis is not on blowing false religions out of the way or or blasting a trail of success for the gospel. That's not what he's talking about. The stress doesn't fall on its mode of operation, you know, it's explosive, but rather on its intrinsic value. It is power. It is powerful. The gospel is the power of God. It offers something that no other religion can. The righteousness of God. That's what the verse says. The power of God for salvation. For in it is revealed the righteousness of God. And and, and I could put that another way. The thing it reveals is how to have a right relationship with God. How to have a right relationship with God. So this is the power, this gospel, which is power. It's a power that can take a sinner who is depraved in mind and body and soul, a a person who is spiritually dead, with no thought of God, bound by the law of choice to an eternal hell. And it can arrest, it can arrest their course, cleanse them from all sin. Give them a righteous standing before holy God and raise them up with Jesus Christ and promise them, guarantee them a future glory. This is the gospel, which is the power of God. Now it's been said, I think rightly so in many ways, that the church has lost its power. The church has lost its power. And generally what's meant by that is the church is no longer making the impact in the world that it once did. At least that is true in the Western world, and we would probably say that's specifically true in the United States. We notice it more and more. And consequently, the church has, for a period of time, tried many things to, you know, to figure out what will work, what, what's wrong and what will work, how, what will bring people into the church. They've, they've developed better programs and nicer facilities. They have 
better and bigger promotions. Then they even, you know, promise to give away things for the one who invites the most people to, to church meeting. You can win a trip to Hawaii if you'll invite people to church. Yeah, that's my motivation to win a, a prize. Hmm. Hmm. They invite special speakers. Special speakers who will draw a crowd. And I, I don't mean by that like the special speaker that we had here last night, Grace Fabian, who shared her testimony about uh, translating the, the New Testament to a, a tribe of people in Papua New Guinea and how God used that many years of service with her and her husband and her husband being killed in the process uh, how God used that to bring people to faith in Christ. I'm not talking about that kind of special speaker. I'm talking about a celebrity or a sports star or someone who's known as, you know, mega important in the business world or, or something like that. And they do many other things which may not be wrong in and of themselves, but they fail to do the most important thing which is to proclaim the message, which is the power of God for salvation. I mean, what good is it if we're not proclaiming that? Now, it's been uh, said that it's lost its power, and I think that, you know, the church has lost its power. And even in our own personal sharing of the gospel, I think we may feel like we, we don't think we're trained well enough to persuade people to trust in Christ. And this indicates the problem. And the problem is us thinking that we have the power, that we are the ones with the power to convince people. We should notice in the text, in the text, that Paul declares that the gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God, not man. It's not, it's not, power in and of ourselves. We don't have the power, but the gospel itself is the power of God to save. Amen. It is the message, right? It is the message, not the messenger. It's the message, not the messenger that can save. It has the power to change lives. It is the word of God. It is the word of God, not our human will, that reaches people in their need. You know, we think, well, if we just commit ourselves enough and to go out and share and so on, then, you know, we'll be able to persuade people to believe. And we do want to persuade people, but the persuasion has to come by the power of the gospel. So the persuasion is what God is saying in and out of his word, the power to save them. And the word is used in the text, Salvation is the power of God for salvation. The Greek word that's used there is soteria. It refers in a very broad way to all that God has provided through his son, including forgiveness of sins, justification, propitiation, uh, all these big words that we should know the meaning to, uh, Propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, adoption as sons and daughters, election, predestination, sanctification, and, and, and glorification. 
and maybe a little subpoint here and there as well. This word salvation is involved uh, involving all of that. It includes being saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin in our life. Hmm. Negatively, negatively, it rescues us from guilt as transgressors. And I, I'm just going to give you a bunch of things that are true of the gospel and what we receive through it and what others can receive through it. And I'll be using a verse for each of these. I, I could add many more verses to make the point, but I won't. So it, it rescues us from the from guilt as transgressors. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Positively, it brings us into a state of righteousness. So it brings us out, uh, uh, away from the, the guilt as being a transgressor and brings us into the blessed relationship of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, that would be God the Father made him the Son of God to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel rescues us from slavery and brings us into a state of freedom. Romans six seventeen and 18 says, But thanks be to God that though you once were slaves of sin, having become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed, which is essentially the gospel, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then you tie that to Galatians chapter 1, uh, Galatians 5 and verse 1. For freedom, 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 for freedom, Christ has set us free. We've been justified by faith and we have peace with God because what Christ has done. But Paul says, we're free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Beautiful, isn't it? We've been set free from a yoke of slavery to sin into freedom. Freedom. Let me just tag on to that and say, that is not freedom to do what we want or desire to do. It is freedom to be a slave of Christ, a slave of righteousness. You say, well, that doesn't sound like freedom to be a slave. Well, absolutely it is, because within the boundaries of the law of Christ, uh, you can tie it even to the moral principles out of the Old Testament, but the, the, the law of love, there's some freedom to do whatever you want to do. There's freedom to honor God with your life, to glorify God with your life. That's where true freedom is found, because it's true righteousness that God has provided you. It delivers us, the gospel does, from a state of enmity with God and brings us into a state of peace with God. So Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, 
much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Hmm. Romans 5, 1, on the other hand, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been brought out of the state of enmity and warfare. And that it was not us warring against God as much as it was God warring against our sin. God was at war with sinners. And because of what Christ has done, We're reconciled to God. We're no longer in a state of enmity, but we are, in fact, family. And we are brought into this peace, state of peace with God. Oh, man, what a blessing is that. The gospel saves us from punishment. From punishment. Now, I listed three different ideas about punishment. The punishment of alienation from God. Alienation from God. Ephesians 2.12 says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Hmm. Alienated from God. Another punishment that the gospel rescues us from is the wrath of God. Same chapter, Ephesians 2, but verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Were by nature children who deserve wrath is what that is saying like the rest of mankind. That's what we were. We've been rescued from that punishment. We've also been rescued from the punishment of eternal or everlasting destruction. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, they, that would be the unbelievers, those that do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Are you glad that God has rescued you from such punishment? But it brings us rather into a state of blessedness. First, the blessedness of being brought near to God. Back to Ephesians 2 and verse 13. Now in verse 12 it says, We were without hope. We were alienated from God. But verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blessedness of being loved by God. Romans 5, 5. Our hope does not put us to shame because God's Love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the blessedness of eternal life, Jesus said it in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Are you getting the idea of what Paul meant when he says the gospel is the power of God 
for salvation, what that salvation entails. I mean, these topics that I've covered are all part of the big idea of salvation and are dealt with in the epistle to the Romans. So what Paul is saying is that the gospel is God's effective power, the effective power that is active in the world, bringing about a deliverance from his holy wrath in the final judgment and reinstatement into the glory that was lost through sin back in Genesis chapter 3. The glory of walking and talking with God that was lost when Adam chose to disobey God. And ever since then, it's been lost. People are born lost and alienated and under the wrath of God. But the gospel changes all that. It is the power of God to save. And it is absolutely important to not pass over the modifying phrase. Yes, see, grammar is your friend. It truly is, because this modifying phrase, to everyone who believes, is so important to what he is saying, because it indicates both the exclusiveness and the inclusiveness of the gospel to everyone who believes. First, the exclusiveness of the gospel. It shows that salvation is neither unconditional nor universal. Right? It's not unconditional. We talked about that the very first seven verses, the obedience of faith. There's one command you must obey to be saved, and that is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you will be saved. So it is neither unconditional nor universal. And the statement limits salvation to those who believe the message of the gospel. The salvation, which Paul is going to define in detail in the rest of the letter, has no reality, no validity, no meaning apart from faith. Get that? The gospel has no reality, no validity, no meaning for anyone who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But that faith even has to be understood as something that people do not have in and of themselves, right? Uh, think of it this way. Faith is not our contribution to God's salvation plan. It isn't. Well, why do you say that? I mean, people have to believe, don't they? Absolutely, they have to believe. Otherwise, they wouldn't be the command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But where does that faith come from? Well, most of you know these verses. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Because that's what we would do if it wasn't a gift given to us, if it was something that we earned. We were smart enough to see it, and we did enough to earn it. No. Salvation. And, and, and some will say, well, yeah, but that's just saying that salvation is a gift. Well, it is saying that salvation is a gift, but it is inclusive of grace being a gift. That's the definition of grace. It's freely given. And faith is given. Uh, 
I'll give you another verse to emphasize that very thing. Philippians 1.29. We spent a fair amount of time in the book of Philippians. And there it says, For it has been granted to you, graciously given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What is it saying has been graciously given to us? Faith and suffering. Well, I want the former, not the latter. Well, it's a package deal, by the way, just so we understand that. But it's been graciously given to us to believe. So people being saved is altogether, not kind of altogether or almost altogether, but entirely altogether God's work. It is. It's God's work. Yes, yes, yes. People must respond in belief. But they would never do so if it weren't for the Holy Spirit first pointing out to them that they are sinful and offensive to God and that they need a Savior. And then he grants repentance as a gift. Romans 2.4 says that. He grants us repentance. He gives us repentance and then gives us faith that we may be saved. All the glory goes to to God. That's right. So secondly, it's, you know, it's exclusive, but it's also inclusive. So while salvation is neither unconditional nor universal, it is intended to reach all kinds of people, right? All kinds of people. It is for everyone and anyone who believes. Amen. And this is the inclusiveness of the gospel, isn't it? For everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. And this this is the inclusiveness of the gospel and what was meant by the clarifying statement to the Jew first and then to the Greek. To everyone who believes. Well, who does that entail? The Jew first and also the Greek. Well, what about the Italians and what about the Filipinos and what about the Russians and what about the Afrikaners and what about, you know, the Amazonian people and what about, and what about, no, no, you misunderstand. Paul is bringing all mankind into two classes of people. You're either a Jew or you're a Greek. You're of the nations. I mean, that, that's seen in the scripture throughout when God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from you will come a seed that will be the Savior, who will be, bring blessing to all the nations, to the whole earth. You were either a descendant of Abraham, a Jew, or you were not. And that made you of the nations. So the gospel is no respecter of persons. Isn't that what he's really saying? The gospel is no respecter of person. It has no racial boundaries. It has no educational boundaries, no cultural boundaries, no moral boundaries, no religious boundaries, no gender boundaries, no boundaries whatsoever. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, that God changes all those boundaries. He does. But 
in reaching people. There are no boundaries. It's like, oh, I can't go there because these people are of this classification. No, no boundaries whatsoever. There is no distinction. The gospel is meant to go everywhere and to every one. And by this statement, you know, Paul is doing that. He's bringing everyone to get, uh, together. So that it's, it, it's universal in the sense that it goes out to all, but it's not universal in that it reaches all. The matter of the gospel first being preached to the Jews, that, that might almost be offensive to people, especially Gentiles, Greeks, right? Probably most of us are in that category, if not all of us. It's like, well, why did the Jews get it first? Why did the Greeks get it second, you know? I think this is simply a matter of God's reference to his choosing of Israel as his chosen people. God's revelation of salvation was absolutely tied to Abraham's race first and, and then to the whole Jewish People who were responsible for revealing it to the nations. And something that Kia was sharing last night at the end of our meeting together. The Jews didn't do a very good job of revealing it to the nations, just like the church has not done a very good job in revealing the gospel to the nations. As we put all these boundaries up, and we don't think we should go beyond those. But it was Jesus who himself was a Jew, right? He was a Jew. And he came first to his own people, John 1.11 tells us, even though they didn't receive him. And the message that Jesus proclaimed and had his disciples proclaim at first was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the kingdom that he preached was the restoration of the Davidic kingdom and the covenant promised to David to have one of his seed sit over the, on the throne of Israel forever. So then you think of Jesus, what he said to the Samaritan woman. This is what he says, you worship what you do not know. We, and you being Samaritans, we being Jews, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. John 4 22. So while the, the gospel was first to the Jews and then to the Greeks, it was always intended to reach all the earth. That's the point of that. It was always intended by God to reach all peoples, all nations, all people groups. It's one of the beautiful things about the gospel. Well, from the power of the gospel... Paul goes to the righteousness that it reveals, God's righteousness revealed. Explains in what way the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I want you to notice the first word in that phrase, F-O-R. He's explaining why the gospel or in what way, in what manner the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it is found in this, that in it, the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, the, the word righteousness, uh, Greek word is diakasune, the word righteous itself as a noun is uh, dikaios. You don't need to know those words, but point out to you that it's found 
in its different forms 66 times in the epistle to the Romans. 66 times in the epistle to the Romans. Obviously, it, it carries a great deal of importance when, with respect to what the gospel is and how we are to understand it. And, and, and so it's, it should be understood that it's critical that we understand its meaning. And, and the original meaning of the word righteousness or righteous was used outside of the Bible. It was used in secular uh, works. And it, it, it referred to um, following a custom or what was uh, customary for people to do. So when, when uh, speaking of a man, it referred to one who conformed his life to the set customs or laws of morality that were among people. When used in a moral sense, then it, re, it referred to that which was lawful or fair. In fact, some of you, you know, would think, well, that's what just is. It's fairness, right? But we like the phrase, well, that's not fair. Even when we talk about God at times, we say, well, that's not fair that he would choose me and not choose them. That's not fair. Fair is not really the deal, right? It's not really the deal. That isn't what the word is really talking about. In the, in the scriptures, the basic idea of the word righteousness or righteous is that of conformity to a set standard or norm, right? Uh, let me repeat that. It is conformity to a set standard or norm. And, and the, when it's used of God, it refers to God as the set standard or norm. That's important. So the essence of the gospel is that it reveals the standards or norms of God and how people fall short of those standards and norms, but they can't attain to the standards and norms of God, just not on their own. So as Paul will go on to show through the whole first section of the uh, letter to the, the Romans was chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20. Uh, people do not have the capability, they do not have the capability within themselves to attain God's standards. They fall short of his glorious perfection. Many of you know Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of his glory, his glorious perfection, his glorious standard, his norms, which is himself. They fall short of God, short of his glorious perfection. So the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation inasmuch as it is a revelation, and that revelation is a manifestation of the righteousness of God. And, and that is the reason the gospel has the power to save sinners. See, people have no righteousness. They have no righteousness in themselves other than their self-righteousness, which you might know Isaiah describes as filthy rags before God. But in the gospel, in the gospel, God has provided a righteousness for us. And he gives that righteousness to people who believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And since this righteousness is from God, because it's his very righteousness, it makes sense, doesn't it, that he would be the one that would need to reveal it? Right, yeah. Paul's giving a very logical, ordered uh, explanation of the theme of this letter, the gospel. So this demonstrates one fact that makes Christianity different from every other religion. What's that? Well, every great religious scheme to save people has failed on the same important point. Its success depends on the righteousness of people. People obeying the set norms and standards. It's just that they have the wrong norm and standard. They're measuring themselves against other people, not against God. But in reality, there is no capability of acquiring God's righteousness, nor even understanding God's righteousness within fallen people. They just don't get it. They can't get it apart from God's revelation. And the the gospel just attacks that problem head on. It establishes that people have no righteousness before God. And then it shows them that righteousness must come from God himself. Only when people are clothed in the righteousness of Christ will they have a right relationship with God. That's what it shows us. And if not, if they're not clothed in that righteousness, they will be condemned as sinners. So a a literal rendering of the next phrase, from faith to faith, could be this. uh, That that from faith for faith is the ESV. Some translations have uh, out of faith, into faith. Some have by faith, for faith. Those are all kind of literal translations of it. But I think, actually, that the NIV... Take note of this, because I don't say this very often. But the NIV probably translates the proper meaning of the phrase best. By faith from first to last. By faith from first to last. Because it focuses on the righteousness of God given given to believing people, which begins with initial belief in Jesus as the Savior, and continues in belief until the end. Belief from beginning to end. Every step of the believer from the very beginning to the very end must be a walk of faith. Not in self. You know, we're told that by humanity at times. You just need to believe in yourself. That's just stupid. It is. It's stupid. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in God. That's, that kind of belief can save you. And then there's the quote from Habakkuk 2.4, and it seems to validate this translation of faith, faith from beginning to end. The, the phrase that he quotes out of, out of that Old Testament book is, the righteous shall live by faith, right? The righteous shall live by faith. Now, this was originally spoken to a righteous remnant of Uh, of Jewish people living in Jerusalem who are about to see Jerusalem's destruction by the hand of the Babylonians in 586 uh, B.C. They they, uh, 
could see the destruction coming, and they knew it would be by the hand of the Babylonians, and they just couldn't figure out how God could execute such judgment on his chosen people by such a wicked people. just didn't make sense to them that he could do that. And the answer that Habakkuk was given was stand in faith. Stand believing that God has a plan and it will be the right plan. They were told that the righteous remnant would continue to survive by trusting God completely. And Paul's meaning is not unlike Habakkuk's. He is declaring that a life which will escape God's judgment for sin, well, it begins and ends in trusting in God, that Christ is the Savior and that life must be lived to the glory of God. Let's, let's bring this to a conclusion. Wow, two verses. We've covered it. Woohoo! But two important verses for understanding the rest of the letter. So let me just remind you Romans 1 16 and 17 is Paul's you know, introductory theme statement about the letter. It, it clearly states that the power of the gospel is found in its revelation of God's righteousness to sinful people. And and let me say, this is not a knowledge that God is righteous. This is a reception of God's righteousness by faith in Christ. We're not talking about head knowledge that God has a characteristic of righteousness. It's talking about the righteousness of God being delivered to sinful people through faith in Christ whereby God then declares the sinner as righteous in his sight. I mean, the gospel changes the person's life entirely, but it begins and ends with faith, right? Now, think of this for a moment. By nature, we think of righteousness as something we can achieve by our own meritorious actions, the, the result of good works that we do. And when I say we, I mean fallen mankind, not you as believers, because you get the truth that we're seeing here. But the righteousness of God is totally different from that. It is a right standing before God that has nothing to do with human merit or obedience to the law or good works. It is received by faith alone in Christ alone. So we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, right? And this is a radical departure from human wisdom. Or should I say human foolishness? Because that's what it really is. But this departure had to be revealed by God. I mean, it runs contrary to the basic instincts of the fallen human nature. Righteousness has, since the beginning of time, since the beginning, been thought of as achievement by human endeavor. But God's righteousness, since the beginning, is a right standing that he freely gives to those who will trust in him. All the way back to Genesis 3, when God provided a clothing of righteousness for Adam and Eve after they had sinned and that it took blood sacrifice to cover 
their sin. Now one final thought is, is just consider for a moment what we have in our hands. We have the most powerful thing in the whole universe in our hands. I mean, it's greater power than an atomic bomb that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's greater power than a nuclear bomb that could destroy an entire city or parts of a nation, killing millions upon millions of people. It's greater power than that eruption of the volcano under, under the water near Tonga just recently that was over 100 times greater than the atomic bomb during World War II. We have something that is a greater power than that. It's called the gospel. Because it is the power of God, not the power of man. It's all those other things. That's the power of man. The power of God, however, far outshines them all. It's the power of God to save sinners. It's the gospel. Think also what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of the whole armor and warfare passage, it says, so take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And, and by that, he meant the gospel, which is the spoken word of God, which is the gospel. Take it up and fight the fight. Attack the enemy. Destroy the arguments that they bring. You say, is that what he's really saying? Well, I'll put it in his words in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, meaning in the human body, we are not waging war against or according to the flesh, meaning faulty human thinking. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What do we have in our hands? We have the power of God, the gospel. And the gospel, when we speak it to people, can destroy every lofty human argument that denies and rejects and suppresses the truth of God. Now, we don't have the wisdom to do that, but God has the power to do it through the beautiful message of the gospel. That's what we have in our hand. Let's get it out of our hands into the lives of other people. Let's take the gospel out. Why? Because it is exclusive and it is inclusive. Not everyone is going to be saved. Only those who hear the gospel, respond in faith to the gospel. How will they hear the gospel unless they're told the gospel? Well, Lord, we are thankful for the gospel. And we're thankful for the you using the Apostle Paul to write these words, not only for our encouragement, edification, and joy, 
but also to remind us of what we must be about, primary purpose of our life, sharing the gospel with the lost. Give us your heart as we take the gospel out. We pray this in Christ's great great name. Amen. Now, I know it's 12.07, but I would really like to end our service with the new song that we sang earlier.